0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here, sitting in again for Autonomy, and welcome to Radiotherapy. We've got a stellar panel today, starting with the Dwyane of General Practice, Miss Medic. Good morning, Miss Medic. Good morning, Dr
0: Nick. So lovely to be here, back in the studio.
1: Thanks for coming in. We have, sitting next to Miss Medic, one of the great minds of psychiatry, a man who regularly blends great science with great art to make great radio, Dr Malice. Good morning. And with football. Um, <laughs> Straight <laughs> Oh, no. Football.
0: I'm a Cats fan. It's not oh, gone I well. I'm so from. sorry. I know. So oh. close.
2: Oh, dear. <sighs> anyway. All right. Can we'll synchronise the sympathy. Yeah, thank you. I can mm. feel it. I can
1: feel it. <laughs> yes. Since 50% of the panel just drove up from Richmond, I think we've got... It. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Now, Let's change the subject. Now, Lolly Doc was to, was to be with us this morning, but he rang, sounding... He sounded like someone had taken a blowtorch to his tonsils, poor man. <laughs> so hopefully he's resting up in bed with a couple of aspirin and his radio, firmly tuned to 102.7. Uh, but fortunately, we have a white knight to the rescue in the form of our medical student. Welcome, Miss Diagnosis. Thank
3: you very much for having me. I'm, I'm not quite sure why I have to be a, a knight, though, as a female medical student sitting here. I mean, surely there's a better term that you can have than a sort of a white knight in shining armour.
1: Oh, okay, that's a, that's a fair point. I don't know what a dame in dungarees. <laughs> well,
3: I was thinking maybe more more a Valkyrie, one of. One of Odin's kind of helpers, one of the handmaidens, something like that.
1: Oh, liking that. Okay, so uh, Valkyrie and Velour, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you're with us, which is fantastic. Thank you for coming in. So in the next hour, we've got a smorgasbord of topics. Miss Medic, she'll be talking orthorexia and other matters, dietary. She might even have us eating our words. (laughs) (laughs) Malice will be looking at the issue of vicarious trauma, how it affects not just patients but clinicians themselves. Uh, well, Miss Diagnosis, fresh from last night's med ball, <laughs> we will be looking at bugs and germs. Ooh, I
0: cannot believe we've rung you in the morning after med ball. We are harsh here. Oh, look, medical
3: school, it's work Can't play hard. <laughs> no rest.
0: <laughs> Tired just thinking
1: about it. <laughs> so with that experience firmly in mind, she'll be looking at bugs and germs and whether all that alcohol that she and her colleagues have been embracing might actually be of benefit. But first, we've got some catch-up. Welcome back to Radiotherapy with myself, Dr. Nick. We've got Miss Medic, we've got Dr. Malice, Miss Diagnosis here on Radiotherapy 102.7. Um, so, what have we got in the news today, Miss Medic?
0: I thought I'd just give a little catch up. I know I talk a lot about flu on the show, and just a little reminder that it's not too late. Well, there has been some shortage of the flu vaccines, as we all know. They're starting to filter through, we're getting some more, and it's not too late flu season really hasn't hit this year yet. Last year, our big spike in influenza came in sort of September, October. So if you haven't had your flu vaccine yet or you were one of those ones that rocked up to the GP when we were out of stock, please be in touch with your general practitioner about arranging a flu vaccine. It's not too late. And we're actually seeing good coverage from the flu vaccine this year as opposed to last year. Anecdotally, the only flu I've seen this year has been in unvaccinated people. What about you, Dr Nick? Have, does that mimic what you've seen
1: too? Yeah, so far we've only seen one proven case, case of the flu. That yeah. was a preventable one from the vaccine. So that was someone who was unvaccinated. Yeah. Wait, you've just come from the Children's Hospital Medical Update. I have. What, well, So for the people out there with children, because this is a bit of a vexed question, because this year we've got free vaccine for children under five, what were they saying about vaccinating your healthy under five-year-old kids?
0: Absolutely advocating and um, suggesting that that was indeed the right thing to do. The large proportion of disease burden of flu in the under fives is in healthy kids, not in children who have a pre-existing medical condition. So we know that children under five are particularly vulnerable to the flu it can be a very nasty serious infection and absolutely it is a good idea to vaccinate your under five starting from the age of six months we don't have a vaccine for the under six months of age but a good reason to get vaccinated in pregnancy we are seeing that women who do get the flu vaccine in pregnancy not only does that protect them from the flu which can be particularly nasty in pregnant women but also provides some protection to that child in the first six months of life.
1: Lovely, thank you very much. Uh, Malice, what have you been up to?
2: Yes, I've just come back from a conference and I'm still wearing the tag <laughs> because I'm attached to it and it was all a childhood conference on trauma
1: for a whole week. I have to and say for those, because it is radio, there's a rather cute sparkly gold lanyard that goes with this tag.
3: Uh, encrusted. Yes,
1: <laughs> now the question is,
2: why did I choose this colour when there was black, red and blue?
1: Hawks. Yeah! <laughs> Yes,
2: it was the closest thing to the brown and yellow gold. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, someone, it's so good to be recognised. Ah, I know you, (laughs) Malice,
0: it's been years now.
2: (laughs) Yes, anyway, on to equally serious topic. This was actually the third International Childhood Trauma Conference here in Melbourne at our convention centre with no fewer than 2,600 delegates... and a cast of international and local experts that runs into dozens plus. And by some of the speakers who come from overseas who certainly knows the quality of international uh, conferences, they regard this as the jewel in the crown of their speaking circuit. Now, this was not flattery because, uh, you know, they've actually named some of the conferences they've been at. So I think we should just be so proud. Joe Tucci, who's the CEO, established this organisation, the Australian Childhood Foundation, and this is their third international conference. That started in 2014, 16 and now 18, and already planning the August 2020 for the fourth. Such is the success. Now, aside from the incredible knowledge base and the cutting edge from the world's experts, the incredible experience of networking with colleagues from West Australia, up in Cairns, from the Mali, uh, from New Zealand, and just exchanging how in the last 20 years my area of specialty, which is child mental health, has transformed virtually in language, the way we think, the way policies deliver health care, and one of the things I'll mention later on is the new toys that are being developed that are informed by the latest neurobiology. Now, you may think this is oh robotic techno-wizardry. No. It is actually back to basics, the cuddly toys. However, now some of them are weighted. They can weigh up to one kilogram. Why you may ask? Because we now know that sensory motor disturbances require sensory motor input. And so whereas previously the play of a child was merely play, now a weighted doll actually requires the child to engage their fine and gross motor movements in picking up the play and they have Velcro's eyes, so you can have different gaze from the child back to the doll and the doll back to the
1: child. So just talk me through that one again, Velcro eyes. Velcro I mean, you can eyes. rip out the eyes and replace them <laughs> well, with nicer ones? Could, but could we, we just use gentler words, <laughs> like transform
2: the gaze from a sad gaze to a joyous gaze? Slowly tear off. <laughs> <laughs> Slow- oh, gosh. But
1: the so- language is so important. Slowly, yes. But the Velcro has that very specific sound and feel to oh, it, doesn't right. it? That, yes. That, that, exactly. That now, why would they do that? That's why I'm asking. Yes. Yes.
2: Because now we know the neurobiology of hearing in certain autistic and Asperger spectrum disorders are privileging the high frequency and low frequency and ordinary sounds do not actually register. Therefore, such children inhabit a world of relationships which is not safe because the high and low frequencies are actually phylogenically to protect us from growling predators, which is low frequency, and high frequency, yeah, help, 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 help. So they are actually functioning at the high and low frequency. They don't have daily input in the normal range so if you get sounds from these dolls in the not mechanical sounds, but ordinary everyday sounds, that is a sensory motor complete package.
1: So can I be clear, are these dolls kind of therapy dolls that we're talking about for kids who've got a known problem or is this a recommendation that all kids, no matter normal or otherwise, should be using this well, kind of play Well, they equipment? are
2: primarily designed for children with certain deficiencies and I'll introduce later Morton the monster, Ollie the monkey, Susan the kitten and Ellen the caterpillar. These each have various functions. In what dimension the child's deficit is repaired by choice of Susan or Aileen or Caterpillar or the monkey.
1: Goodness. Yeah,
2: it's, it's, it blew my mind and uh, it's the practical application of neurobiology... In the clinical and the cultural setting, it's just
1: that's one. Isn't it it wonderful that at your stage, because you are one of the more experienced taxpayers in this room, (laughs) had gently put that that at this stage of life you can go to something. I mean, I've always thought if I come away with one new piece of information, but to come come away literally as you say feeling like your mind's been blown because you've learned so much i was at a similar thing i was at a a conference yesterday over in adelaide um with a lot of mental health practitioners and psychiatrists we had a presentation from a, a research psychiatrist in america talking about coming to your question about neurobiology about the neurobiology of psychotic relapse and we know that people with psychotic illness of which schizophrenia is the most common that Recurrent episodes are almost the norm. We know that when people have recurrent episodes, they tend to do worse each time it happens. Uh, And so we think the stopping relapse is really important. Mm. But what they've now shown, which is something we've only discovered in the last 10 to 20 years, is that every relapse is associated with structural brain damage, with loss of neuronal tissue, which is quite terrifying to think that every time someone has a psychotic episode, and it's estimated from their research that every episode of psycho- psychosis, 1% of neuronal tissue is lost. That's 1% of all the brain tissue. Mm. Now,
3: is this reversible loss or irreversible?
1: Which, of course, is the crucial question. And <laughs> Like so much that I have taught when I was a medical student, we just turned out to be wrong. I was taught that brain tissue was fixed once we were adults and couldn't regenerate. We now know that that's not true, that we can regenerate brain tissue. And so it is reversible, but... That's a huge loss, 1% of tissue with each episode. So to reverse that requires an enormous lot of time and an awful lot of protection. So the ideal would be to prevent it happening in the first place.
2: Now, if I just add a little rider to that, that's sort of tragic enough in adulthood. But when you have early psychosis in late childhood or early teenage years, then that one loss impacts not only on the function but the developmental trajectory, the potential to unfold for that child or adolescent because that pathway is already then gone. Again, the upside of, because of neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, synaptogenesis, we now have new pathways that can open up and hence the technology of toys and dolls takes on a whole new meaning to provide these reparative moments. Yes.
1: It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it, that we might need a special to, special toys and dolls yes. to repair brain that's right. tissue. That's yes. a, a lovely thought that that's possible. It's, it's actually in practice. These are called the Big
2: Tree Folk. It's non-gender, so it's not do, t- toys or dolls and patronising. These are called the Big Tree Folk, Morton the Monster, Ollie the Monkey, Susan Kitten and Aileen the Caterpillar. Mm-hmm.
3: You are listening to a podcast from
0: Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Miss
1: Lydic, you've been thinking about eating.
0: I'm always thinking about eating, <laughs> <laughs> um, in a healthy way. So, what I wanted to talk about today was a little bit about the impact of the healthy food movement or the clean eating movement, and what's that? What sort of impact that can potentially have on certain individuals. So you'd have to be living under a rock to have not noticed that over the last, say, five years in particular, there's been this real movement towards changing the way we eat whole foods, paleo Pete, and all of these different sorts of diets that are being pushed the superfoods kale and quinoa and things i had no idea about when i was a kid um, they're all become the mainstream and norm and there's been a a huge sort of instagram movement with clean hashtag clean eating Um, and on the surface it might assume that in the with our rising rates of obesity and uh, metabolic syndrome and lifestyle-related diseases, that this is all very much a good thing. But is it? So for some people we think that this sort of clean eating movement can actually trigger a, a subclinical eating disorder which is known as orthorexia and it's probably best if i use one of the a little example of how this might occur this is on the dietitians association of australia website so take for instance that you've cut out the friday night takeaways the wine sipped with dinner your morning mockers and you're feeling great <laughs> You've lost a bit of weight, your skin is glowing and you are full of energy. You feel so good that you wonder about making a few more changes. You might try out some of the new health trends that are appearing on your social media feeds. You always see gluten-free, raw or vegan creations popping up on your Instagram and Facebook. Gluten is the first to go. A few weeks later, you cut out all dairy. Finally, you stop eating any animal products. You feel healthy, pure and clean. You haven't touched chocolate or anything you deem unhealthy for months and feel completely in control. You're starting to find it hard. At first, you felt full of energy, but now you struggle to make it through the day without feeling tired. And you have had to turn down a few social events because you don't feel comfortable eating any of the food you haven't prepared yourself. In fact, you notice yourself becoming anxious around mealtimes. You seem to be spending most of your day planning your next meal and are constantly concerned about eating the right foods. So this gives an example of a condition that is called orthorexia. And ortho coming from the Greek word meaning right it refers to an obsession with righteous eating and, and eating it, righteous it's interesting
1: isn't it because what you described that sort of cascade of change you think First up, this is really healthy. Yes, there's nothing wrong with this. We're yes. cutting out bad stuff. We're introducing good stuff. Vegan diet, absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with that. But absolutely. what you're saying is the balanced tips somewhere.
0: The balanced tips, and interesting, like the words you use, cutting out the good stuff, uh, uh, cutting out the bad stuff, and eating all the good stuff. It's it's, and that's a big part of this. That foods become either clean or dirty, either bad or good, and they have this almost morality placed upon them. Whereas we know they are just food and what we what and look this is not the case for everyone obviously not everyone who embarks on sort of some clean eating and rehashing their diet or a vegan diet is at risk of this but some people are because it can it can become obsessional and we know that when that happens you're at risk of having mental health consequences as a result so what I was wanting to talk, talk about was the fact that just having some awareness around this. Um, And if we think about... And I I actually went to a talk by the Butterfly Foundation earlier the week at my children's school talking about body image, and they referred to this. They're seeing a lot of this. Because obviously, if you think about who's exposed most to social media and is most influenced, it's our young people. Um, And who's most... um, at risk of eating disorders. Well it's our young people, our young women um particularly, but increasingly our young men as well. Um and for kicks, last night I thought I would look at how many times the hashtag clean eating appeared on Instagram. And it appears thirty nine million eight hundred and ten eight <laughs> eight hundred ten thousand eight hundred fifty five times
1: now for someone like myself who doesn't even understand what you mean by instagram even to me that's a lot of clicks <laughs> well
0: that's right so that is like people have posted a picture and they've included the hashtag clean eating meaning that it's searchable on that term so that is a lot of exposure if you think about our young people scrolling through their insta feeds how much of that they might be seeing and um ha- is this is this good well no it's not all good because having a healthy diet is not just about what we eat it's about the relationship we have with food it's about being flexible it's about being relaxed and a relaxed attitude towards eating and that leads to the best health outcomes overall
1: so how does someone know when they've moved from healthy eating to orthorexia because a lot of mm. a lot of eating problems are hidden anyway whether it's anorexia Absolutely. bulimia but that may be slightly more obvious because of weight loss or because someone's always visiting the toilet and making strange noises yes but with orthorexia how do we know so
0: i guess it's all about just having a little bit of a of yourself and the people around you, and like any um, sort of mental health problem, it's when it starts to cause real functional problems. So, meaning, uh, a one measure can be how much time you spend thinking about food. So, if you're thinking about planning your meals, you know, three hours a day, that's probably starting to sound like you're spending a little bit too much time on this, and it's about your feelings associated with it. So. Anxiety about eating something that is not deemed to be one of your preferred foods um withdrawing from social eating because of your obsession with what you eat um and even checking in with yourself how you feel when you're looking at these instagram feeds um does that immediately when you see a plate of food do you immediately you know feel a bit Anxious about what you're eating or not? Um, when you see, yeah, certain behaviours, do they? How do they make you feel? And that might indicate whether you're starting to have a little bit of a problem with your eating. And if you do feel like that might be the case, then please see someone about it.
1: And is this is the sort of thing where family and friends should be looking out for it? Because I, I would imagine often it's more apparent to observers than it is to the person who's experiencing yeah, it.
0: I absolutely do think that family and friends should be looking out for this and sort of bringing it to the individual's attention if they start to see, think that there might be a problem. Um, what we know about people that go on to develop serious eating disorders is that it starts with some kind of diet. Not everyone who goes on a diet and or some kind of change in their eating pattern goes on to develop an eating disorder. But when we look back, those who are affected, it starts with something like this. And so, something like the clean eating movement is all about restriction and that is where it starts to get dangerous.
3: I was just noticing while we were talking about this, Miss Medic, that uh, you know even the term "clean eating" is such a loaded term itself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. you know it implies that we have clean foods and we have dirty foods, and you know we have good foods and we have bad foods. And I guess once that kind of thinking, especially for young people who are just scrolling through their social media, they might not necessarily be recognizing that they're imprinting these ideas about what food is from such an early age as well. About you know this is a clean food and this is a dirty food, and I, I just think it's a really interesting way that it develops
0: absolutely and i think that if we think about our young people and how we want them to be going forward and how they are have little vulnerable neuroplastic brains that are trying to sort the world out we really want to encourage a healthy relationship with food no foods are bad no foods are forbidden food is food foods to be enjoyed food is we we're designed to listen to our bodies and eat um, in a health in a way that overall is healthy but really nothing should be you know restricted or be labeled
1: as good or bad because so, so for people listening to this whether they feel they recognize this in themselves right. or they recognize this in someone they know and love what should be the first step
0: look often I think um, doing something as seeing your general practitioner can be a good starting point. There are lots of services available for this. So the Butterfly Foundation actually has a um, a hotline with, with counsellors and they actually advise getting in and speaking to someone early if you have any um, concerns. I will look that up and give you the number by the end of the show. But definitely seeking help early because we know that before we want to intervene before there is some you know really unhealthy behaviors have started and some real damage to our physical well-being because what the other thing about this clean eating movement is that it can actually lead to micronutrient deficit so absolutely so we do know that it, the more restricted you come the more you're potentially cutting out large food groups so calcium drops off very quickly protein can drop off very quickly so and that's why it people tend sometimes start to not feel as well as they did at the beginning because they are start starting to become micronutrient deplete um so it's you know it's not necessarily healthy to be a clean eater and i just want people to have some awareness around that
1: It's one of the commonest things that people ask me in general practice is about diet. Mm -hmm. Uh, and My advice is to listen to the seven words said by Michael Pollan, the writer about food, who said very simply, eat food, not too much, mainly plants.
0: Yeah, and I love that as well, and I talk to that about my patients. And for a more explicit sort of example, I talk about... Um, a dinner plate as being half of the plate. And the dinner plate should really be there's four sizes of your your palms only. Um, so one half or two palm sizes would be vegetables. One palm would be protein and the other palm would be carbohydrate. And the Children's Hospital also make the same recommendations for
2: so,
1: kids. Sorry, what's the fourth part?
0: So carbohydrate. Uh, the
1: fourth one's chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So two palms of vegetables.
1: Oh, two vegetables. Oh, yep, so right. half
0: the plate. Um, one being carbohydrate and another one protein. And that is, you know, a good rule of thumb. And if you're hungry after you've finished the protein and carbohydrate component, more it, vegetables. Then the chocolate. Oh. More <laughs> vegetables. <laughs> you can have unlimited vegetables, essentially.
1: I, I'm getting a bit lost on how palms can be a rule of thumb. It. It. <laughs> True. Just a step... Rule of palm. <laughs> Just to step back a bit, because of the
2: understanding that we're increasingly having of the gut-brain axis. Mm. Is there a discussion of which comes first, which is the chicken and the vegan egg, as it were? Um, Is the clean eating movement the primary mover or are some people predisposed to this suggestibility that something which they don't recognise in the upper brain can be regulated by the gut, which is the lower brain. So is there... Which is... What's coming first here?
0: I think that we as human beings have naturally utilised food for lots of different things. Mm. And because of that, I think that people... A lot of people have a complex relationship with food and we have moved away from the very simple notion of eating, which is, um, you know, eat when you're hungry... Yeah, listen to your body, listen to your body's signs. But, you know, I think that very quickly we start to overrule those Mm -hmm. even in childhood and eat for various reasons. So I think it is complex and I think it probably takes... It's almost like we've gone from one extreme to another and there's the the safe road is probably somewhere in the middle um, and really learning to listen to our bodies again and to really try and... Create a flexible way of thinking about food.
1: I love your question, though, George, because we're increasingly coming across the gut microbiome, the bugs Mm -hmm. that inhabit our normal intestine, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has been crucially involved in so many areas of health. And there is evidence emerging that when we do these things called faecal transplants, Mm -hmm. when we put healthy bacteria back into damaged gut, if you take a faecal transplant from a thin person and put those bugs into a fat Mm -hmm. person, that fat person becomes a thinner person Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So uh, there is an absolute relationship between what's happening in our intestines and what's happening to our eating behaviour. Malice, um, you've been thinking, as you, as you do so deeply, about so many things, but vicarious trauma...
2: Yes. Now, vicarious trauma is an extraordinarily complicated word uh, for a a universal process. I, you, we all experience it. And I'll give the working definition and then a setting, a context, how it came up in the conference that I just mentioned previously, the Australian Childhood Foundation's International Congress on Childhood Trauma. My uh, partner in research is a a dear relative, happens to be my mum, called Alice. And she gave the best definition of vicarious trauma that I use in all my presentations and personally. And she likens it to passive smoking. Mm -hmm. That is, if someone smokes and there's smoke in the room, someone else will pick it up and suffer consequences. Similarly, if someone is seriously traumatised... If you are in a relating situation with them, listening to them, hearing them, and even on a media, television and so on, you are at risk, if you're a sensitive soul, to picking up on those vibes, a bit like passive smoking, in the, the material sense, this is a bit more sublime, but it's neurobiology says it's the same process.
0: It, it's how I feel when I am watching the
1: Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: I find it so traumatic. Oh, it's hard, yeah.
1: But it's also presumably it's recognised, and that's one of the reasons why, when we do have distressing stories in the media, mm. then those stories are followed up by links to helplines and so on. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm. Now, that's the implicit process
2: in the culture. That, in fact, in some ways, culture is ahead of clinicians because, as you say, the program which is likely to arouse distress or unwellness or upset is followed by either a forewarning uh, before the program, be careful what you're about to see may be upsetting, or afterwards, a postscript. If this program has upset you, here is the phone to call beyond blue or helpline or whatever. Now, implicitly, that is actually about vicarious trauma. So thank you for highlighting it because we all know we live it, but we rarely give it a name. So the adage is, if you name it, you can tame it. And so what we're going to do is to go back to this conference that I mentioned in the introduction, an extraordinary, the jewel in the crown of Australian child mental health. And the whole question is, what is driving Joe Tucci, the CEO, to organise and put so much energy himself and his extraordinary staff to invite these speakers from all over the world and to attract over two and a half thousand delegates? And if I reduce it to one sentence, it's the child's right to effective treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, that is really a simple throwaway phrase, if you like, but there is such Advances in what is available and how we think about ordinary childhood growth and development, and clearly where there are deficits or what are called adverse effects in childhood, the ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences in Childhood Research, that children who experience an undue or excessive amount of these experiences their whole trajectory for their future life can be at risk for derailing.
1: So can you give us some concrete examples? What do we mean by vicarious trauma in childhood? Because we're all familiar with the concept of trauma in childhood, abuse and neglect and so on. But what do we mean by, by vicarious trauma? Lovely.
2: Now, what we exactly as you say, what we're familiar with, and in fact some professionals still don't link that to trauma, but abuse, uh, neglect, abandonment, experiences like this, or illness, in fact, secondarily, because a child loses ordinary function, for them becomes traumatic. But let us, for example, take a child who is witnessing the suffering of a carer mother for a sibling. Mm -hmm. They themselves may experience a little bit of neglect because the attention goes over from mum and dad to the other sibling, But they also pick up on various things that don't directly traumatise them, but feel their siblings suffering. And this is quite a neglected area because so much focus has been on the direct experience. So vicarious is, as in passive smoking, one step removed. Now, if a child is able to have vicarious trauma, which neurobiology now says it can and does... What the question came up for our presentation was what happens to us as professionals when we actually treat or assess and treat such families and their young people? Because we sit in our consulting room and we listen to the story. We then examine the child, if obviously not in child psychiatry, but in uh, general practice, paediatrics and other branches, and seeing some of the damage... We're not traumatised directly because we're trained. But yet at another level, this experience and what I term we become unwell together with our patients. If we don't recognise our own unwellness, and a little bit like Ms Medic just said before, it is a question of our own awareness that this is important, that we should check in with our body much like with eating, that was about food, here is about our very state of wellness. And clearly one of the risks with trauma is when it gets overwhelming, the only recourse we have is actually to distance ourselves and technically it's called dissociation. Then we go on autopilot. We are still very good, efficient therapists and nurses and social workers, OTs, language therapists and so on but we're actually disconnected from the closeness.
3: So I've got a question as I'm just starting my psychiatry rotation at the moment and as someone who obviously isn't trained in it yet, how do you recommend medical students avoid vicarious trauma when they're on placement?
2: What a wonderful question. The immediate answer I will tell you from whether you're starting or whether you've had decades and you're a dinosaur like myself there is no avoiding it. This, if you are going to be an effective doctor or an effective health professional, you allow yourself to be in that close, almost emotional, intimate space. However, the difference between how I was trained, which was like, you know, this was not even registered mm-hmm. as an human experience... Now we become aware of it and therefore we can take steps of how to regulate our vicarious trauma. And in the end, really, we're going to be teaching our patients to regulate their own trauma. So we're going to be putting ourselves into a zone or a space that resonates in synchrony with our patients. But because of our awareness and training, we will be able to track where we reach our limit sort of exit the zone of tolerance, and we bring ourselves back into that tolerable zone and thereby beckon the patient to come back also. Now, you may go on to the next question. What happens if we don't do this? Mm. And your excellent presentation a month ago, which was about hand-washing, now that brings up an extraordinary historical fact uh, by a fellow called Dr. Zemmelweis, who a couple of hundred years ago found that if they didn't wash hands in hospitals, uh, women who gave birth had a much higher rate of mortality. And he advocated washing hands, and people thought he was slightly crazy, and in the end, sadly, he ended up in an insane asylum. However, the lesson was learned 20 or 30 years later when bacteria were discovered and the transmission did get to be proven from hand-washing. And from there on, we know a condition that we as health professionals should pay attention to. It's called iatrogenic illness. Mm. That is illness introduced by us as professionals. So if we are not aware, clearly that was the hand-washing example. Mm. Here we come, if we are not aware of the latest understanding of neurobiology and this interpersonal Vicarious quality of trauma. It is akin to the cigarette smoke. And imagine sitting with a patient who's smoking all day and you breathe that in all day. Now, that's what my mum would say. Now imagine if you're sitting with patients all day long with trauma, abuse, neglect, abandonment, conflict, unresolved, intergenerational trauma, and so on, and you have no idea you're actually absorbing that state then you are vicariously traumatised.
0: And I, I guess that's exactly the point. It's about awareness. It's when you have no idea of yeah. what might be going on that over time this could lead to that sort of disturbed level of function or some of your coping strategies become yeah. mal- dysfunctional. And instead, because I guess we do experience this to a certain extent in a day-to-day practice, in general practice about you know when it's starting to be a bit you know you're starting to feel a bit heavy with the load the emotional load that you're taking on and sometimes you can't so one one kind of way to deal with it was like you said misdiagnosis is to avoid it but we know that in doing that would be not being our best selves as health practitioners so i guess the way i see it seeing it Uh, one set of scales being the emotional load, well, we've got to tip the balance the other way. So what are we going to put on the other side? What sort of protective factors are we going to put in place? You know, how are we going to um, engage in really good self-care in order to manage the uh, emotional load or vicarious trauma that we may be exposed
2: to? And here we have the perfect mechanism we all have built in. And I just put the uh, rider that if we don't do this, not only are we damaging ourselves but we're then delivering less than the right of the patients to effective treatment, hence iatrogenic illnesses. And this is going to sound a bit blasé, but we have got a manual override for our own stress system. So what is that
1: perfect mechanism? Let me demonstrate. So just for the sake of the listeners, George's heavy breathing (laughs) (laughs) is... In the best possible way. And and I hear that because one of the things I'm aware of, what I monitor in my daily work, is the temperature of my fingertips. Yes. Um, Because as soon as my hands are feeling cold, I know I'm stressed. And my treatment for that is exactly what you've just done. Between patients, I sit back in the chair, take some deep breaths, check out which muscles are tense, which for me is always head, jaw, shoulders relax those and within a minute my hands have warmed up. Could I make one suggestion?
2: You don't wait till the end of the session you do that as soon as you register
1: in the session mm-hmm. and you re-regulate yourself as it's unfolding Which is actually very good advice because the number of times I've examined an abdomen and <laughs> I've got oh because my fingers are cold <laughs> I need to do it before I <laughs> before the patient pulls his shirt up. Now
2: I have a similar mechanism, it's called my Fitbit and when I feel woozy and sort of uncomfortable, this unwellness together, I've actually noted my pulse rate down to the mid-50s. Now, my resting pulse is around 70, so I'm not bragging that I'm fit as 50s, but I actually go what is called parasympathetic overdrive. The certain part of the autonomic nervous system actually dampens my heart rate so low, I start to get lightheaded and not quite myself, That is the beginning of my unwellness. Now, if I stay in that state, I cannot deliver the right effective treatment. So that would be the moment I enter the risk of iatrogenically produced and wellness for the patient now we could talk
1: about this for a long time one quick question before we have to wrap up but you mentioned about dissociation now this has always been in in a sense time on the technique whether you're a surgeon dealing with very gruesome operations or psychiatry dealing with gruesome psychological stuff is there something wrong with people dissociating with stepping back and not being too connected with the trauma that they're seeing What a wonderful question. Very briefly, as doctors, we're at a great
2: disadvantage because we're trained to dissociate. So, in fact, it's a life-preserving way of functioning. And when you're 18 or 19, and in my days, we had to do the autopsies in our second year while our colleagues were at the cafeteria or somewhere else hanging out loose. Uh, So we had to dissociate from the deprivation of the social life and staying together with, you know, a a dead body. So it is normal for adapting circumstances. Surgeons rely on that afterwards because they're actually causing assault. Technically, they are assaulting people with a knife. So provided the dissociation is used to advantage, it's absolutely life-saving. As therapists who deal with infants and mothers... If we are dissociated with a dissociated mother and baby, we're doing no one a favour. So then our responsibility is to become attached to our intimacy, not detached from our intimacy. So it depends on the circumstance.
0: You're listening to a podcast from
2: Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Now, we're sitting at the far end of the studio and doing a very good job of looking bright and alert. Staying upright. <laughs> After apparently a very late night studying last night. Um, <laughs> yes. Misdiagnosis, you want to justify something to do with alcohol by something to do with germs and bugs. Tell us what you're talking about.
3: About. Well, yeah, that was the plan. I mean, it's from one type of dissociation to another. Um, <laughs> but essentially, so, you know, we, we do like to sort of play a bit hard in medicine as well as study. And I sort of thought, well, maybe I can self-justify the drinking behaviours of, of my colleagues. Of course, not myself, uh, of my colleagues. Um, so I thought I would have a bit of a look into whether alcohol can help the consuming alcohol, not just the alcoholic hand wash, which we did last month, whether it can actually um, kill bacteria. Because often I've had non-medical friends say things like, oh, you've got a cold, well, just burn it off with a bit of gin or, you know, <coughs> a hot toddy with some whiskey and honey and, you know, these kind of things. So I thought I'd just do I do it. love
1: a hot toddy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> i back a hot
1: toddy. Well, the- lemon.
0: Molly- yeah. yeah, Lemon and honey. Whiz-
1: and whiskey. Whiskey. So, so Lolly Doc is uh, lolling around at home in bed with his razor blade throat feeling awful. Mm-hmm. Are you going to give him a recipe for his cure?
3: Well, uh, look, uh, <laughs> as misdiagnosis, I would not <laughs> pretend <laughs> to recommend anything. Um... There are some advantages and as with everything, there are some disadvantages as well. So so what I thought was most interesting is they've, they've actually done a lot of studies into this about whether bacteria can survive in various alcoholic mediums and what they've found is that, that wine, especially red wine, has pretty incredible antimicrobial mm. properties that's above and beyond just the acidity and the pH, which is what we might normally uh, attribute it to. So it's not just the, it's not just the alcohol concentration itself with red wine, it's actually sort of the properties of, sort of the tannins and the other bits and pieces.
1: Is this research from the Penfolds Institute for <laughs> Medical Research?
3: Yes, Yeah. this is from grange.com um, No, but and I was also looking at um, sort of other alcohols as well and whether, yeah, you know, whether if you, if you drink vodka, if you drink gin, whether that's going to have any effect in terms of your gut microbiome and it, it actually depends on the concentration, so we were having a quick chat about this before we started the show that you do need concentrations of above 40 percent to have any kind of antimicrobial properties which means you need to be shotting your gin or your vodka and you need to be keeping it in your mouth for about a minute if you want to kill off any of those bacteria in your mouth or drinking enough of it that it can sit in your stomach and kill off the bacteria in your stomach Anyway, which of course can also cause all sorts of intestinal damage as well, um, sort of micro erosions in the stomach itself, and that you know that takes sort of twenty-four to forty-eight hours to to heal. Anyway, so I think the conclusion, oh. <laughs> unfortunately of my research this morning was that this is not necessarily an effective strategy. That being said, we also know that most of the colds are viruses anyway. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Now, having done the research, it's a personal quest that I try for safety. What would be the safe way to do the shots and the whiskey <laughs> uh, so you re- reduce the chance of the micro-erosions but still get the beneficial mm. spiritual effect?
3: Well, I, I think... Probably the most important thing would be to have something else in your stomach at the beginning because if you've got straight alcohol going on to those lovely parietal cells down there and destroying them straight off the bat, it's going to do a lot more damage than if you've had, if you've consumed a meal, if you've had your. Two, two palms of your vegetables and your one palm of carbohydrate and one palm of chocolate, protein. Chocolate. Yeah. One <laughs> palm of chocolate, yeah. yeah. Um, and having something else there will dilute the alcoholic concentration, but then also maintain uh, that wonderful feeling you get when you sort of sip a whiskey. Yes. So you can still have it in your mouth. It's a win-win. It, absolutely. It so seems ah.
1: to me the alcohol industry is constantly trying to prove the health benefits of their products without actually succeeding in any real clinical sense, and <laughs> this sounds to me like another example of that.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I also did a a little bit of a look into um, the drinking habits of medical students. Again, purely um, academic (laughs) and not at all sort of based on my social experience. But I I had a look in BMJ for this because I'm I'm a diligent medical student and I was studying last night. Um, And they, looking at some of the studies in the UK, it's uh, figures of about one in ten medical students um, are exceeding sort of the weekly standard alcohol uh, recommendations, which, interestingly, the study said only 1 in 10. Uh, yes. I, I thought that was interesting because I wasn't sure whether you know, th- these figures have come down necessarily or whether we're just really pleased that only 1 in 10 are abusing alcohol.
1: Maybe that's in comparison to the doctors they've become. Mm.
0: The ones exposed to <coughs> vicarious trauma and mm. uh, don't have the um, more adaptive coping strategies perhaps.
2: I mean we say that lightheartedly but we do all fall back on the well-known and well-tried ways to numb mm-hmm. our pain. And there's nothing better socially acceptable than alcohol. And
0: yes. we do know that doctors above the uh, the rates in the general population are more likely to engage in some unhealthy drug and alcohol behaviours and have mental health problems.
1: So, so there is a lot of truth in it. Can you remind us what the safe alcohol drinking levels are just for the population out there who are not swilling back shots every morning just to cure their sore throats? So
3: for safe levels, we're looking at not more than two standard drinks a day
0: Um, but we're also two alcohol free days per week
3: exactly i was just about to add we're also looking at trying to have two alcohol free days a week as well
1: it's an important point, isn't it? Because uh, the alcohol guidelines did change a number of years ago um, when men were allowed twice as much as women and then the research suggested probably Pay twice as so much or drink twice as much. That's no. right. So they're, they're quite strict these days because two yeah. drinks it's just a standard drink is a small glass of wine or a, a standard beer so it's not a lot of alcohol. Um, we, we could probably talk alcohol for a lot longer but we're going to have to wrap up at this point. I just want to ask Miss Medic, you mentioned the Butterfly Foundation telephone number. You've got it in yes, front of you. Yes, right
0: in front of me. So if Anyone that uh, feels the need to maybe have a chat to someone about themselves or someone they might be concerned about their eating behaviour or relationship with food, give a call on 1 800 334673. So 1 800 334673. This has been a podcast from 3 RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at
2: rr.org.au.